an opportunity is not really an opportunity for you unless it's something that resonates with you, that you're passionate about, that you're going to be willing to work on. And I just feel like too many people go through life and they kind of let life and other people direct what they're going to be doing instead of creating a life they love. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Our guest today has held just about every type of role one can hold in the world of entrepreneurship. She's been a founder, an operator, a consultant, an author, and now brings that expertise to the university classroom and boardroom at the University of Tampa. In today's discussion, we'll get down in the dirt on the good, the bad, and the ugly about her successes and failures and how those translate to both existing founders and budding entrepreneurs through three key words, see, do, repeat. Serial entrepreneur, author, and lifelong academic, Dr. Rebecca White, welcome to The Dirt. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. I'm sure everyone's already wondering, how did you get involved in so many different aspects of entrepreneurship? <laughs> well, I guess like most entrepreneurs, I I'm, I get bored pretty easily. So I'm always looking for the next thing. And I've been really fortunate. My mom was an entrepreneur. And so I grew up in this kind of a, a mindset that I, you know, talk about in my book, which you mentioned, See, Do, Repeat. And so this book is really kind of telling my story, which is that in every, throughout my life, I've, I've created jobs, I've taken, I've had, you know, held jobs that others created, but I always made them something different. So, so, you know, it's just been, it's just been my journey through academics and starting companies and back into academics and and now you know book, uh, writing books and serving on boards and teaching in as many different formats as I can. So I think I'm a creator and a teacher, uh, educator. And so I've just uh, looked for as many ways that, that I could use those skills, I think as possible. Yeah, let's go let's go back to the beginning on the on the entrepreneur side. You started your first company when? Well, I've always been very entrepreneurial. So I was one of those kids that was that was always trying to sell something. But I would say the the company that I started a consulting company uh, shortly after I got my PhD. But the company that really taught me a lot about entrepreneurship was a company that I started with one of my colleagues when I was teaching in Cincinnati. Uh, it was about two thousand four, and we identified a problem in higher ed. And uh, as most as most as most concepts do, the concepts change dramatically. It's kind of a long story, but the name of the company is Risk Aware, 
And what we did was risk mitigation for higher education. So we created, uh, we did background checks uh, as a way to bootstrap our company. And then we created a software called Red Flag, which was an anonymous reporting software. And again, this was 2004, 2005. So it was back when the internet was very different than it is today. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also right around the Virginia Tech shooting, which probably deeply connected from a timing perspective, right? It did, and did, and and as you may know, I got my master's and my PhD at Virginia Tech. So when uh, when that happened, it really added a whole new sense of urgency to what we were doing. And then there was one in Northern Illinois not long after that. But right. it was it was an interesting journey. We really started out. My 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 colleague and business partner was a former CIA operative who had left the CIA and was teaching strategy. And she was brilliant in so many ways. And so she was a division one athlete and was um, very concerned about some of the problems that were happening at some of the schools, specifically her own school. And so we did some research on how, how these kinds of bad actors at universities especially in the athletics. And, you know, I don't have to tell the stories. There's a lot of those over Mm. the years, how they actually damage the reputation of universities. And so that's what started the whole business. We were doing research on that. And what we found was as we continued down the path and continued to try to understand the problems that higher ed was having at the time and still continue to have, what we realized is that campuses are wide open And there are so many different kinds of people on campus. It's very difficult to manage. And so, again, this was 2004, and we were just seeing the opportunity to sort of organize the Internet in a way, a newer way. And um, so we were in Cincinnati. There were a couple of companies there that highly influenced us. One did this, you know, organization of information on the internet for the government and one for Procter & Gamble, which is a big presence in Cincinnati. So we had the the opportunity to get guidance and mentorship from two other entrepreneurs there in Cincinnati. So as, as it always is with an, entre- with an entrepreneurial venture, it's kind of a coming together of timing and the right people. Uh, I always tell my students, it's going to be a combination of who you are, who you know, and what you know. So Stephanie brought the competitive intelligence. I brought uh, understanding of strategy and and how higher ed worked. And uh, then we we surrounded ourselves with really smart people that understood a little bit more about how we could use the internet, which was really different at that time. <laughs> so two co-founders who both had their day jobs that eventually evolved to uh, spend all their time on the business. Yeah, we we joked because we started out in uh, at that time, a lot of universities were starting to offer space like we have at the University of Tampa. But Mm -hmm. what we had at our school was what we called the Brady Bunch house. And, you know, it had uh, turquoise appliances and shag carpet. And it was fun, though. It was it was actually a great experience. And even though I had a Ph.D. and had been in school for a long time, some of the best lessons I got in entrepreneurship were the painful ones. I, the most painful sometimes <laughs> lessons that I got from, from this startup. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those. <laughs> you opened <laughs> yourself right up. What was the biggest pain point that you guys had to overcome or the biggest obstacle that you guys had to overcome? And, and how were you able to do that? 
Oh man, there were there were a lot. I think for us, one of the biggest challenges was uh, what you just mentioned before. Um, we were both academics at the time, and we were trying to figure out whether uh, I I took a sabbatical, and you know that's a very cool thing that we have in higher ed where we can take some time off and work on something else. But we were we were both uncertain as to whether or not we were really the right people to build this kind of a company, I, I, me in particular, because even though I was really passionate about it and excited about it, we knew that there were probably some other people that could come in and run it that had more experience building tech companies. And so one of our biggest challenges, I think, was when we decided to bring in a CEO and really understanding people and what to look for. Hmm. I, I We interviewed three people seriously. They were very different. Looking back on it, I think that one of the things we were, we were just, uh, we were afraid of how rapidly this business could grow. And so I think that was one of the biggest learnings for me. You have to get ready and hold on (laughs) sometimes uh, if you've got a great, great concept. So that was one of the biggest problems for for us, I think, was learning to judge people and understand who we needed to bring in to lead our company. We did take some investor money, which was another big learning lesson. And I've been able to leverage that, I think, coaching founders who are in that position because you know I I've learned that I've become a translator a lot of times between the investor and the entrepreneur. I, I used to do a presentation called Investors Are from Venus, Entrepreneurs Are from Mars. And when I did that, both the investors, well more so the entrepreneurs really got it <laughs> because entrepreneurs are often really passionate about building their company and solving a problem. And we have to remember that investors are capitalists, you know, and while they want to see us succeed, there's oftentimes we're saying the same words, but meaning something different. So anyway, taking money, that was a challenging one. The other really big lesson for us, you know, we were trying to do it all. And in the early stages, that's probably really good. And I was doing all the financial side of the house and we we got our first Customers, there were there were a lot of things in the market that were changing, which were really positive for us. And so we got our first customers using background. We were doing background checks. So my partner and I became uh, licensed private investigators, which was kind of cool, uh, which is what we had to have to do that. And and we took on. We had a couple of customers, and one of our customers was the university there in North, a university in Kentucky, because Kentucky had had some legislation requiring increased background checks, and people in this part of Kentucky didn't move around very much. They, you know, and they didn't have a lot of name changes, and so we priced our product based on that, and. Basically, for a background check, you aggregate a lot of things, but anytime somebody moves to a different county or they change their name, it's an added cost. Uh, it's, there's a lot more detail to it, but basically, there's an added cost. Then the next company, we got another small school and that price worked, but then we bid on a huge school, Texas AM, and we got it and we were really excited. But as I was doing the financials, I realized that we were losing money on three out of four people that we were doing background checks on. So having a big client almost put us out of business and we just weren't, we didn't understand how to price. And that's why we got the bid. Obviously we were way under pricing everybody. So pricing and people and 
understanding G and growth. Th- those were the biggest lessons. I want to break into a couple of those. So on the on the financial side, because you see so many people looking at the business from a how can I get a big customer or the biggest customer, right? And then on the other side, customer concentration ends up being an issue because you have one or two really big customers. And in many cases, you're actually losing money on some of them because you've priced mm-hmm. them as as you mentioned. When when I'm thinking about or when an entrepreneur is thinking about getting their first, let's call it 10 customers in the door. What what are some things that they should be thinking about and some tips that you have for them? Well, that's a really good question. I always encourage my students and the entrepreneurs I work with to focus on the low-hanging fruit. And that is, you know, so as we all know, I think now it the key is really um, talking about listening to customers. So getting lots of feedback and lots of information. And Sometimes when you're working with those big clients, it's hard to get that information because they have all the power in the relationship. So, you know, I I always try to encourage my students to think about what's your low hanging fruit? Who who really needs and wants this product the most? And who is it that's going to be able to give you the feedback to improve on this product because it's it's important enough to them it's a it's a, it holds a big value for them so that can be that can vary i mean it can be a big company and that from a marketing perspective it was a big deal for us to get a big school like that i don't want to underestimate the importance of that but you really have to understand uh, what that means for you, as, especially in terms of a cash flow issue, OOC, OOB, out of cash, out of business. So <laughs> that's the formula that you know we talk about in in our classes. So I would say the customers that will actually give you information and for whom you are creating significant value, because in the earliest stages, it's it's really you, you don't want to fall in love with your solution. You want to you want to stay focused on the problem. Yeah. I also hear so many founders that talk about having spent six or 12 or 18 or sometimes even longer months chasing after a large enterprise, a fortune 500 company, somebody that's showed extreme interest, but has historically long sales cycles. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, what advice would you have for folks that might be involved in one of those as looking at it as, hey, I got to get this whale first, right? Yeah. Any any thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, in higher ed, we were selling to universities. So they all almost have, have extremely long sales cycles sure. and complicated and bureaucratic sales cycles. We had a few strategies. I mean, because we were educators and understood the space, our goal was to become experts in this space of campus safety. And so we went out to conferences and we wrote white papers, we wrote academic papers, and it's not a bad strategy. It doesn't work for everybody, but um, I know someone that built a pharmaceutical company. It was, you know, it was a company in Cincinnati and they actually had the drug Adderall, which a lot of people are familiar with for attention deficit disorder. And they chose to be the experts in that space. That was kind of their marketing strategy. So, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, you've got to feed, you got to feed your company basically. So chasing after that one big client 
who probably is going to squeeze you on margin, which is the other thing, again, because they're, they got that power, isn't always the best survival method. Sometimes you got to do both. So I, I don't know if I really gave you a good answer, but what we tried to do was become experts in the field so that the bigger schools would pay attention to us and see us as credible. I mean, a lot of it's about credibility and legitimacy when you're small and starting up. And it's that's hard to establish, especially with the bigger companies. And critical thinking and strategy, right? Like be mindful of how that's, as you're, as you're pointing out, connecting to the OOC, OOB, right? Out of cash, out of business. And that there are going to be a lot of people that spin your cycles. And those people in the early days oftentimes will be the ones that try to stretch you on margin. So don't be overly reliant on one or two big sales coming sure. in. I think that's one thing I kind of got from what you said, but also, you know, just be mindful of your cash position and how everything connects to your financials. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, the you know, accounting and finance are the language of business. So you have to know it. And it's actually a problem a lot of times with our students because they're not uh, they're not always uh, that's not always their favorite part of what they're doing. But it's it's very empowering to yeah. be able to understand it. And so you have to do that. There's a reason why two of the most trusted advisors you need early on and really through the whole company life cycle is an accountant and an attorney. Attorney. That's right. <laughs> and I'm married to an attorney and I called on him a lot, which much to his chagrin when we were building a company. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. One of the things that I read and I got from your book, Seed Do Repeat, not only just from the title, but from the way of operating and being mindful of, of, having a great idea and turning that into a real company was the division of seeing and doing and repeating, but then also looking at it from a life cycle perspective. Why are those the three words that you chose in terms of that life cycle? That's a great question. So the, that book is designed to sort of democratize the idea of entrepreneurial mindset and so that anybody can understand it. And we talked about it, you know, it's a very easy read, and but there's a lot in it. And what I was, my goal was to distill down 12 years of research that I've been doing on the competencies associated with entrepreneurship. And there, there's a long story there. I've worked with a lot of scholars. I've done a lot of, published a lot of papers and book chapters and academic work in that space. And a lot of it started when one of my colleagues who was formerly in the business world designing these kinds of things for businesses, you know, when we hired him, it was, I was asking this question of what is it that an entrepreneurship graduate should know that's unique and special? What's different about getting an entrepreneurship degree or studying entrepreneurship than studying business in general? And for many years, we used to say, well, it's just little big business, but it's not. And so that book is, like I said, years of research that that uh, included interviews and surveys with thousands of entrepreneurs to try to distill down what is different about entrepreneurship. And so it's very simple. And when that, when I came up with the title, which you specifically ask about, I wanted to use very simple words. The C is about the ability to recognize opportunities. So 
people who are entrepreneurial, it's like they wear a pair of glasses that the rest of the world doesn't have because they see opportunities everywhere. That's one skill that we found over every study that had been done that entrepreneurs have. That's a capability that they have. And it, it, you know, I, I break it down in my book to creating creative problem solving and creating value and understanding the criteria of an opportunity. So the first step is recognizing an opportunity and entrepreneurial, the entrepreneur, the new venture process entrepreneurship starts with that. But that's not the end of it. <laughs> uh, you know, it, the, the difference, there's lots of people that come up with great ideas, but the difference is that there are people that take action. And that taking action involves building networks. It involves lifelong learning. It involves building your confidence and your what we call self-efficacy, your, your confidence that you can perform in, in certain given environments. But again, that's not where success lies because, you know, a lot of people stand up an idea, they take some action on it, but they give up <laughs> before they they get to the success line. And 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 there, I'm not going to say that there's never a time you, you don't pivot because you're pivoting all the time. But the reality is that the successful entrepreneurs are the ones that execute past failure. And that's the repeat. So I wanted to look for simple words um, and it's an ongoing process. If you're an entrepreneur, it's, you don't come up with just one opportunity. It's, it's all the time. You're looking for creative uh, problems to solve. You're figuring out how to take action, which might mean bringing in other people. It might mean a lot of different things, uh, but it's always about learning. And then you're, you're, you, you execute past failure, which is definitely about learning. <laughs> yeah. So that's where they came from. Yeah, no, that's great. Let's, so the see and the do, right? The, the seeing of opportunities and discovering them and creating them and and then the doing of taking action. I think I think those are probably the two most clear to people. Um, but this repeating one, I like I really want to dig into this because because having resilience and overcoming fear of failure and optimism that's connected to and the things that the you know the the keywords, if you will, that are expressed or many chapters that are expressed in your book all fall down into making sure to repeat, 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 because <laughs> it is hard. And resilience is a word that's oftentimes overused, but not overachieved. <laughs> and so, you know, what what does that mean? What does that repeat function mean as you're kind of connecting that to some of the concepts of resilience and, and optimism and fear of failure? Thank you for that question, because um, you you were you identified the three skills that I talk about in a, in a competency model, we identify the higher order competencies, but each of those involve skills. And so in the competency of, of repeating and executing past failure, as you mentioned, there's this concept of resilience and, and dealing with failure and optimism. And there's been a ton of research on, on all three of these really. And the, the point of it is that executing past failure is take, is a willingness to take a learning approach to life. 
And believe me, this has been hard for me because I, um, you know, I can be a perfectionist at times <laughs> and, you know, you have to give up perfectionism because it's really <laughs> about this continuity and this moving forward. You know, we all got a big test in resilience over the last several years. And I think we continue to be tested. There's a lot of very challenging uh, problems in the world. But, you know, resilience is 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 not just like the rubber band snapping back. It's about coming back better for the entrepreneur. So if we can reframe the way we think about resilience, and in my book, I talk about building a resilient business, some of the things you can put in place, as well as your own personal resilience. And I think those are really important for entrepreneurs to consider. And if you can reframe the way you think about it, it can make a lot of difference. And if you, from a resilience perspective, if you go into challenging circumstances with plan B, a plan C, people that you can lean on, a safety net. You know, we have a wonderful entrepreneurial ecosystem in Tampa Bay where I'm located now. And that's designed to really help provide some of that safety net for entrepreneurs. They have a lot of, there's a lot of support and assistance. Uh, but you have to be willing to ask and talk about it. And the earlier, the better. I got some great advice that problems and, um, you know, the, I tell I, this came to me when we were talking about bad news that we had to give our, our board and that one of my coaches basically said to me, you know, bad news is like a banana. It's only going to get more ripe. So get it out there soon. And so it's resilience is about being willing to see reality and which some people might think is counter to optimism, which is another component of executing past failure. But um, entrepreneurs and, you know, I talk about this in my book, entrepreneurs under, uh, learn that they have to have a, a focus on the future. And, and an optimist is someone who actually believes that the future is going to be okay. And, you know, without that, why would you even do all this hard work, right? So you have to have that. But this is not talking about being Pollyannish. You know, it's not talking about ignoring reality. It's talking about accepting reality, but being optimistic and confident that you can deal with it. And and it's also, you mentioned fear of failure. I devote a, a chapter to that, which is, you know, the place where I see the most emotion when I'm dealing with my students. And, you know, it's it's very scary. But as I talk about my book, failure is we have to stop thinking of, of being a personal failure because something that we tried wasn't didn't give us the outcome that we wanted. So if we can reframe failure as a learning process and really start thinking about the only failure is really not trying yeah. and and they can really change. It's it's reframing the way we think and we talk. You know, one one place in particular that as I was reading your book, I connected those three concepts um, in a really meaningful way was, and you mentioned the boardroom, was as you're pitching investors that are eventually in your boardroom, right? And so many founders will not be expecting that they've got to give 50 pitches to get a yes, or that <laughs> it's going to take six months to get to a yes. And that resilience, but also the optimism every time you walk in that damn room, <laughs> that you are going to get a check um, on the other side of that meeting and and not having the fear of failure, but um, understanding that it's going to be a road and you're going to, you know, you're going to, 
have to put in a huge level of effort to be successful is some more that I just like all three of those coalesced into something that I have been hearing just a ton about, especially as you head into a recession or as you're in a little bit harder times, right? Resilience becomes everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. During turbulent times, especially any, any thoughts on that or any other use cases where you've, where you see like those three terms, like really coalesce into the founder dichotomy, if you will. Yeah, well, I think it. I think you mentioned obviously pitching for money. I think pitching for customers, mm-hmm. trying to attract the right talent. Today, getting the right talent is just so frustrating, but it's the key to everything. It's all about people. Um, at the end of the day, that we've got to surround ourselves with really smart people. Certainly, there's a lot we can do as solo entrepreneurs. But even as a solo entrepreneur, you know, I I highly re- recommend surrounding yourself with the right people. And in order to do that, you you might hear some people say, "No, I'm sorry, I don't have time to help you or work with you or be you know do this thing." So, I think it comes up all the time. It comes up when you're trying to pitch for money. It comes up when you're trying to get that big customer. It comes up when you're trying to win win a sale. I talk in the um, in the book about the idea that, and I think a lot of sales folks keep this in mind, but one of my podcast guests on the Infactor said that he learned to sell by and to keep at it basically by recognizing that it, it took it took like it might take a hundred pitches to get to where you need to get to. But what you recognize is that each of those pitches is getting you 100th closer. So you got to do them all. The the challenging thing about entrepreneurship is that we don't have a a track record or history to kind of show us how many times am I going to need to pitch this product for somebody to buy it? So what you have to do is you have to have that optimism and that faith, and you have to look at failure as a a learning uh, process. And then you just get up every day and the, you know, in my book, I talk about being a practice. So I'm not a, I'm not somebody that really is a big fan of looking for hacks. I, I still believe in the law of the farm with most everything. And so it's like showing up every day. That is, that is it. Show up every day. <laughs> yep. And the last chapter of that, that, that of, of your book and of that section repeat is, is choosing oneself. Yep. Why does one always have to choose themselves? That's, you know, that chapter was an add on, but I love it. As an educator, we always learn to introduce what we're going to talk about it, talk about, talk about it, and then conclude what we talked about. And so I I knew I needed a conclusion. And I I had interviewed a guy named Jeff Civilico on The In Factor, and his, he was a a performer uh, out in Las Vegas. And his advice, and one of the things we talked about there was choose yourself. He said, in the performance world, it used to be that you had to wait for somebody to choose you, but mm-hmm. he decided not to do that. He decided to choose himself. And that really resonated with me because what I know from my own experience is that entrepreneurship can be, uh, uh, at times, at least to your family and people that might want you to take a different path, it can, it can, appear to be a very selfish path. And and especially if you're doing something really innovative and different that a lot of people don't understand or believe in. So choosing yourself by that, I mean, it's kind of like putting the oxygen on you first before everybody else. You, You have to take care of yourself. 
An opportunity is not really an opportunity for you unless it's something that resonates with you, that you're passionate about, that you're going to be willing to work on. And I just feel like too many people go through life and they kind of let life and other people direct what they're going to be doing instead of creating a life they love. And so whatever that means, it may not mean starting a business. It might mean you know, something else. Entrepreneurship can be applied in a lot of different contexts. I I had a student um, a few years back that basically, I forget what they call it, but he started churches in communities and he got a, got a degree in entrepreneurship to help him figure out how to do that. I've had students in, the, you know, that, that work inside of companies that are looking for ways to initiate new projects or do something different. So it really can be, you can really use it anywhere. Love it. Yeah, well, that's, that's that's great stuff. There's one more thing I wanted to bring up as it relates to your research that we've talked about, which is this this word conscientiousness. Why does conscientiousness, why is conscientiousness such an important word or quality for an entrepreneur? You know, it kind of goes back to that uh, repeat, <laughs> but it uh, but it, it it actually is a factor all the way all the way through. So there was a study a number of years back. There, uh, psychologists have identified five key personality factors. Personality meaning things that are kind of enduring about us. So we're, you know, I don't want to say we're born and they never change, but we still, we have a tendency. Uh, most of these things are on a scale, you know, a continuum. And so we have a tendency to be one on one end or the other. And there are five, uh, five of those that psychologists have identified. And you can remember them by thinking about ocean. So as an acronym, so openness to new ideas, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And I, a lot of times when I'm talking about this, I'll say, which one do you think? There was only one that that's, was significantly different among for successful entrepreneurs from the general population. And uh, a lot of people say neuroticism or <laughs> openness, uh, you know, or extroversion. But the reality is the only one that that was significantly statistically different was conscientiousness. And if you dig into conscientiousness, it's about showing up, which we already talked about. Every mm-hmm. opportunity I ever got came from showing up. I think somebody said that, Woody Allen or somebody. <laughs> but it's about it's about continuing to persevere, which is I think Steve Jobs talks about that as being the key differentiator. You know, it's about all of those things about showing up that we talked about. Um, earlier. And it's about paying attention. It's about when you're listening to the customer's feedback, you're getting the nuances of what they're saying. Um, You're not kind of taking what they say that agrees with what you already thought and ignoring the rest. You know, you're having the courage and the bravery to, uh, or the courage to listen to the things that are contrary to what you thought. And so conscientiousness is critical. And I see it all the time with the companies that I coach and we work with. Um, it, it's the conscientiousness that makes the big difference at the end of the day. Love it. So true. Okay. So at the end of every episode, we tend to close off with a series of five rapid fire questions that we call the founder five, Rebecca. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. So the first one is the number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. 
Am I creating value? Love it. Top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. I mentioned it already, but don't fall in love with your solution. Stay focused on the problem. You're going to have to pivot even in the growth stages. Yep. Well said. Um, a favorite book or podcast other than your own, of course. <laughs> you uh, yours, of course. But, um, <laughs> the, you know, I love podcasts and books. So it's, this was really hard for me. But I want to mention one that really made a big difference in the way I thought about creativity. And it's called The Medici Effect. And it talks about the intersection of ideas and uh, and culture. It's been out for quite a while, but I encourage uh, everybody to take a look at it if you're interested in uh, being more creative and innovative. The Medici effect. Yeah. I, wow. It is rare that somebody mentions a book on this show that I have not read, but I have not read that one and I am going to read it. Yeah. Check it out and then let me know what you think. That's awesome. Yeah, I will. All right. What actor would play you in a movie? Uh, Sally Fields. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. I yeah, that, back when I was younger, people thought I looked like her. Of course, my hair was dark then. So. Yeah, I was going to say, did you used uh, to have darker hair? Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of have her personality. So I, I've always liked Sally Fields. Oh, I could totally see it. Yep. All right. And last one. What is going to be the title of your autobiography? <sighs> this was a, a tough one. But, uh, you know, see to repeat is sort of my autobiography. But um, I also thought probably giving up perfection because it's been a lifelong journey for me. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah, that's that would probably be somewhat similar to my title as well. <laughs> okay. You've given so much to listeners today, Rebecca, Dr. White, time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those listening help you out? Well, I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn. I'm Dr. Rebecca White. And uh, I also have a website. It's drrebeccawhite.com, drrebeccawhite.com. And I'd love for you to check out C to Repeat. It's on that website and my podcast, The In Factor, which you can also uh, find either by putting in infactorpodcast.com or going to Apple, Spotify, all the, those places. And uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you'd be interested in sharing your story, I also interview entrepreneurs on the, on the podcast. So awesome. Highly encourage it. Highly encourage the book, which I just finished myself. See, so do repeat. And uh, we will be putting all those links in the show notes for everyone as well. Thank you, Jim. Um, you bet. On that note, hey, have a great rest of your day. And uh, thanks for joining us on The Dirt. Appreciate sure. it. Sure. I enjoyed it. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt. <laughs>